Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 162, Ratification. Last time out, we concluded the Constitutional Convention. The delegates spent nearly four months in Philadelphia over the summer of 1787 and had produced a new blueprint for the government of the United States. However, this convention only had 55 delegates, and only 39 of them had signed the document. They couldn't decide for themselves to replace the Articles of Confederation and create a whole new government. They needed to convince everybody else. The new constitution would need to be ratified by two-thirds of the 13 states, meaning that nine would need to agree to it for it to take effect. Washington wrote to Congress, which received his letter on September 20th. Congress was generally favourable of the Constitution. Many of its members had attended the Constitutional Convention, but they were cautious about how to approach ratification. They decided to simply pass on the Constitution to the states for their consideration without recommendation. Almost immediately, various defenders and opponents of the Constitution started waging a pamphlet war. The two sides were known as the Federalists, who supported sovereignty being divided between the states and central government, and the Anti-Federalists. The Federalists managed to take that name for themselves almost as soon as the convention finished, leaving opponents of the Constitution to take the much less useful Anti-Federalist title. Some of these authors used their own names, some used pseudonyms, including Sentinel, Landholder, Roderick Razor, Cato, Fabius, and the most famous of them all, Publius. Between October 1787 and August 1788, Publius published 85 entries collectively known as the Federalist Papers. They were written by John Jay, who wrote five, James Madison, who wrote 29, and then Alexander Hamilton wrote the other 51. The Federalist Papers are considered a classic of political thought and are a great insight into the way that Hamilton and Madison intended the Constitution to work. They would also serve as weapons of persuasion for the Federalists to use across the nation. Both Washington and Jefferson, who knew the identity of Publius at the time, praised the work. The work of these papers was influential, but it would be speeches and actions that would arguably have the greater role in driving events over the next year. The first to ratify the Constitution was Delaware. Delaware's population was composed of small farmers and they had a strong economic dependence on other states, particularly Pennsylvania, with whom it was unified until 1776. It swiftly held a special election for a constitutional convention, which approved the Constitution unanimously, 30 to nothing, on the 7th of December, 1787. But more interesting was what was going on in neighbouring Pennsylvania, where there was an actual debate. This debate was to be expected. Americans living in the age of revolution had fought hard to protect their individual liberties and protect the government that emerged in the furnace of the revolution, namely the Articles of Confederation. 
Many had expected the Convention to propose amendments to the Articles, which they expected would need to be ratified by all 13 states to take effect. Not a new form of government, which only required nine states to approve. They had questions. In Pennsylvania, the Anti-Federalists made two main criticisms. The first was a lack of a Bill of Rights, protecting what the revolution had been fought for. James Wilson countered this by saying that the federal government could only execute powers which were given to it, with all other powers being reserved for the individual states. Since no powers were given to remove the free press, for example, the government would be unable to do it, making a Bill of Rights unnecessary. The second point made by the Pennsylvania Anti-Federalists harked to Montesquieu, the French political philosopher who was the expert on republics, and whose ideas of separation of powers and checks and balances had been so influential on the Constitution. Montesquieu did not believe that a republic could exist in a large country, arguing that it would tend naturally towards despotism. The United States was large. How could local needs be represented by such a small number of individuals who would naturally be targets of intrigue and corruption? At the time, most state government terms were only one year, and there was a direct relationship between representatives and their constituents. This would be broken by the small number of national representatives serving longer terms. Madison held a counterpoint. He believed the opposite, that republics tended to fail because they were small and naturally unstable, which Madison attributed to a democratic element, which was subject to the direct whims and passions of the people. Madison believed that a republic operating on such a scale would make it difficult for a majority to be formed, given the disparate interests at play. This is a classic example of where the Federalist Papers are useful. Madison explains it all in Federalist 10. Quote, The smaller the society, the fewer probably will be the distinct parties and interests composing it. The fewer the distinct parties and interests, the more frequently will a majority be found for the same party. And the smaller the number of individuals composing a majority, and the smaller the compass within which they are placed, the more easily will they concert and execute their plans of oppression. Extend the sphere, and you take in a greater variety of parties and interests. You make it less probable that a majority of the whole will have a common motive to invade the rights of other citizens. End quote. Despite these misgivings, the Pennsylvania Federalists acted quickly relying on support from the artisans and shopkeepers of Philadelphia, along with the surrounding farms. They rushed through a convention which voted two to one in favour of approval on December 12th. This caused a great deal of resentment, and shortly after Christmas, James Wilson was attacked by a mob. But still, it was two states down, seven to go. The next to take action were New Jersey and Georgia. Both were similar to Delaware, small, weak states who wanted the support of a wider union. Georgia was also young and did not yet have a settled identity and was under threat from the creek. Washington himself remarked, if a weak state with the Indians on its back and the Spaniards on its flank does not see the necessity of a general government, there must, I think, be wickedness or insanity in the way. Georgia voted unanimously for the constitution 
on January the 2nd, 1788, as did New Jersey. Connecticut's main concern was commercial domination by New York, and giving regulation of foreign commerce to Congress would protect it, so Connecticut supported by more than three to one on January 9th, the same day that the ratification convention began in Massachusetts. Massachusetts held a lot of resistance to the Constitution, particularly in the west of the state. Remember, this was less than a year after the conclusion of Shays' Rebellion. The farmers of western Massachusetts had been unable to convince the state legislature all the way in Boston to address their concerns. Just imagine how they would feel consenting to an even more powerful government even further away. The Federalists in the state quickly identified they would need the support of two key individuals if they wanted to get it through the convention. Sam Adams and John Hancock. Adams was persuaded by the support of the artisans for the Constitution and by the reasonable arguments of the Federalists. With Adams on board, he set about persuading Governor Hancock, who was conveniently ill with gout while he waited to see which way the wind was blowing. A mixture of flattery and sound reason led Hancock towards the Federalists, and the final touch was the idea that if Virginia failed to ratify, he might become the first president of the Union. Hancock went to the convention as a Federalist, and managed to secure the ratification on February 6th, although it was close, 187 votes to 168. It also recommended that amendments be made to secure civil liberties. Six states down, three to go. Maryland easily ratified next on April 26th, 63 votes to 11. The local factor at play in Maryland was that the anti-federalists, such as Luther Martin, were supporters of soft money. For a state which was suffering with inflation, this was too much. South Carolina was also not much of a contest. It was a weak state, where security against Indians was a prime concern, like Georgia. When it was understood that slavery would not be threatened, it ratified. 149 votes to 73, on May 23rd. It also recommended amendments. That made eight. One state to go. There were five states remaining who could ratify the Constitution. New Hampshire, Rhode Island, New York, Virginia, and North Carolina. Rhode Island was not going to ratify the Constitution, having refused to send any delegates to the convention and North Carolina was also reluctant. New York's governor, George Clinton, was an anti-federalist and didn't want to ratify the Constitution, but he was also aware that rejecting the Constitution could potentially mean the end of the Union. The thinking was that if some states didn't ratify the Constitution, they would be free to go their own way. But, realistically, if New York left the Union, the United States would be physically divided into New England and everything else. This could destroy the Union, and Clinton didn't want to be the person responsible for that. His hope was that another key state, like Virginia, would reject the Constitution, so responsibility for destroying the Union, which he supported, wouldn't fall upon him. Hamilton tirelessly sought to keep the New York Federalists together while they waited for another state to save him. New Hampshire, 
which had originally opened its convention back in February, eventually ratified 57 votes to 47 on the 21st of June, 1788. With nine states involved, the Constitution was officially activated for those nine states. However, realistically, it needed both Virginia and New York to ratify too. Patrick Henry led the charge for the Anti-Federalists in Virginia. Unfortunately for the Anti-Federalists, Henry was not particularly persuasive. He was eloquent and complained that the Constitution didn't protect the individual rights of citizens. Madison was unable to persuade Henry, but he was able to convince Edmund Randolph, who, you'll recall, hadn't signed the Constitution, even though he had held such an important role in drafting it. Randolph, Madison, George Mason, and John Marshall all backed the Constitution, but eventually Madison agreed to pass the Bill of Rights as an amendment to the Constitution, and with that, a majority to support the Constitution was achieved. 89 votes in favour of ratification, 79 against, on June 25th. With Virginia ratifying, Hamilton was able to convince New York to ratify the Constitution too, which it did on July 26th. And with that, the 11 United States of America were born. They set about electing Congress and electing George Washington as the first president. North Carolina would finally join the Union in November 1789, and Rhode Island would join in May 1790. The ratification of the Constitution marks the end of a 26-year journey that began with the close of the Seven Years' War. Since then, we've watched what began as a series of protests over taxation transform into a protest movement that led to independence. The critical period of the 1780s saw many lessons be learned in a short while, and the result was a constitution that would set the foundation of the United States as we know it. The constitution was not perfect. Between now and then, we've had 26 amendments and a civil war. But it is essential to understand the constitution to understand America. The constitution is a nationalist document, and as such, it was ahead of its time. Nationalism is something we are all familiar with today, and it was several years away from exploding across Europe during the French Revolution. But in 1787, it was a relatively new concept. The idea of an American nation was a novel concept. The Constitution bound the states together and created a direct link between a national government and citizens that would be common to all Americans as long as they were white, landowning men. The states had sacrificed their individual sovereignty for the collective. This would lead to numerous questions down the line, such as whether it was possible to secede from the Union. While it was possible for a state to leave a confederation, as happened when Britain left the European Union, leaving a federation was a great deal more complicated. These actions were necessary. Men like Madison and Hamilton saw that regional systems would not work with the states acting against each other. There needed to be national taxation, national commerce. The Anti-Federalists were not opposed to the Union. 
even North Carolina and Rhode Island would eventually join. They just wanted a different future, which can perhaps best be described as English. A government of limited power that would naturally evolve to meet circumstances. However, as Hamilton, Madison, Washington and Wilson could recognise, there was unthinkable potential in the United States. Wilson, by no means a radical, said that the Constitutional Convention was to frame a government, quote, not only to 13 independent and sovereign states, but likewise to innumerable states yet unformed, and to myriads of citizens who, in future ages, shall inhabit the vast, uncultivated regions of the continent. End quote. The Constitution was a radical action, but it did take actions to protect the states, as would be explicitly stated in the Tenth Amendment. It was built with checks and balances to protect the various sections of the government from each other. Here we conclude the third great chapter of our story. The first, 1607 to 1677, covered the initial founding of the colonies. The second, 1677 to 1763, covered the establishment of parliamentary power through the Glorious Revolution in England and its effects on America, both through a period of benign neglect and then an attempt of intense involvement during the Seven Years' War. Since then, from 1763 to 1789, we've covered the effects of the Glorious Revolution on America, ultimately into a series of rights, liberties and responsibilities held by the government and individuals. The Constitution was the documentation of this struggle. The culmination of 26 years of political debate. English liberty had been reworked into something new and a framework had been established for how these new forces, the federal government, the state government, and individuals themselves, would interact with each other. But exploring that, we'll have to wait for next time, when we'll begin the next chapter of our story. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. 